So this is what he says. He says, for the government's business of guiding the people by laws is made easier when the feeling for decency, the census decori, as negative taste, Mm -hmm. interesting, is not deadened by what offends the moral sense, such as begging, uproar on the streets, stenches, and public prostitution. Venus Volgivaga. I'm Gil. Here with me today is Lillian, Owen, and Will. Hey, guys. Hey. Hey. Yo. For today's episode, we're going back to one of our old faves, the all-destroyer himself, Immanuel Kant. Longtime listeners will know that he was the subject of the first episode of our What is Dialectics series, episode 13, way back in May 2021. That focused mostly on the first critique. Then, Kant was also part of the story when we had Jacob Blumenfeld join us for episode 54 last December, when we talked about the idea of property in German idealism. I'll uh, use this opportunity to shout out that Jacob's book on that subject, The Concept of Property in Conflict in Hegel, Freedom, Right, and Recognition, was published just last month by Rutledge. So you should go grab a copy and, as one does with external things, possess it as your own. So this isn't entirely new territory, but we're focusing in on the metaphysics of morals today. It's a late text from 1797. Most people who have read some of Kant's moral philosophy are probably familiar with the grounding for the metaphysics of morals, which he wrote in 1785. Others may know the second critique, the critique of practical reason from 1788. If in those texts Kant laid the groundwork for practical metaphysics and developed a critical account of the limits of practical reason, In this book, he's actually doing the metaphysics itself. That means giving an account of the nature and extent of the duties that we have both to ourselves and to others, and determining the kinds of social and political structures that are appropriate for ensuring that these duties can be carried out in accordance with the laws of freedom. This book is wild. It covers everything from asking about how many drinks you should have at a dinner party to reflections on the idea of cosmopolitan peace and how it interacts with the empirical fact that there are coastlines. It is divided into two parts. There is a doctrine of virtue, which deals with duties for which, as Kant says, no external law-giving is possible, and a doctrine of right, where external laws can and should be prescribed. This just means that there are some things that you should adopt as ends, namely, you should aim at your own perfection and at the happiness of others, but that there's no consistent or reasonable way to make laws that enforce this. Nobody can make you want to do the right thing, but we can still specify what it looks like when you do want to do the right thing. That's the sphere of virtue. By contrast, there's also a sphere of right, which doesn't have to do with the ends that you adopt, but rather with how you act and specifically with how you act in public in relation to others. And here it is possible and Kant thinks necessary to lay down laws. Theft, for instance, is a violation of one's duty to others, and it is also the sort of thing that we can outlaw and punish. I feel like I should apologize maybe a little bit that I've asked us to read and discuss only the doctrine of right today. 
Not because I don't think it's interesting. I think there's lots of fascinating stuff here, and hopefully you all thought so too. Uh, but rather because the doctrine of virtue is so bananas. It barely feels like reading Kant. He talks about the duty to be sympathetic alongside casuistical questions about how much sex it's okay to have for pleasure. Uh, not much, it turns out. He, if you, the listener, are at all familiar with Kantian ways of thinking about morality, you really owe yourself a read-through of the doctrine of virtue, and you know maybe we'll come back to it in a future episode. But like I said, today we're talking about the doctrine of right. The doctrine of right is itself divided into private right, which deals primarily with private property and public right, which talks about the rights of citizens, states, and nations, and very briefly touches on this idea of cosmopolitanism at the end. Uh, so go check out the episode with Jacob if you want to hear us talk about the bits about private right. Today we're taking a closer look at public right. For Kant, as always, everything has to do with freedom. He writes, quote, any action is right if it can coexist with everyone's freedom in accordance with a universal law, or if, on its maxim, the freedom of choice of each can coexist with everyone's freedom in accordance with a universal law, end quote. That is, concretely speaking, my action is right if it doesn't mean that I'm constricting the freedom of any others. Constraining the freedom of others is wrong. But this also and immediately means that it's right to prevent anyone from constraining others' freedom. This, in fact, authorizes coercion. The principle of freedom makes it not just possible, but morally necessary to use force to prevent anyone's freedom from being constrained by the choices of others. The concept of freedom thus implies a priori duty and coercion. Bad news for the libertarian set. <laughs> Things then start to move very quickly. From this concept of freedom implying coercion, right coercion in the form of universally enforceable laws, Kant will derive the objective practical necessity of the state, with a sovereign legislator expressing the general will of the people, an executive branch carrying out this legislative will, and a judiciary. These three aspects of state authority are, Kant says, beyond reproach. Kantian unconditionality takes on a fearsome new form in state authority here. I don't want to go on too, too much longer, uh, but there's just so much more, and some of it is frankly mind-blowing. Kant determines, for instance, that there is never any right to rebel, but that one is also immediately duty-bound to respect the authority of the new government if a rebellion happens to succeed. It is imperative that you not think too hard about the historical origin of the state that you live in. There is an a priori duty to enter into society and leave behind the state of nature. There's even a duty to write the metaphysics of morals, <laughs> although I think Kant probably enjoyed himself, uh, maybe spoiling the moral purity of his intention. There are discussions about the right of the state to punish criminal acts and to exercise clemency, the duty for states to form peaceful alliances with each other, and the problem of living on a spherical globe and the question of, yes, settler colonialism. States must, Kant argues, be constructed institutionally in such a way that the freedom of all citizens is safeguarded from any potential abuse of power. And this partly provides the justification for the mixed constitution he advocates. Just as each citizen in the polity is mutually and reciprocally duty-bound, the different parts of the state are each in their own way reciprocally restrained in the name of freedom. In short, the Kant that emerges here is kind of a classical Republican. And the ultimate aim of the doctrine of right is, he says, nothing short of universal and lasting peace, which Kant says may never finally be achieved, but which we can ever more closely approximate. 
So I think there's plenty to talk about, and I'd like to just open it up here by asking you all what you thought of this very strange late Kantian work. Oh, just one quick, that was an awesome intro, but just one quick correction. Uh, you said the concept of the state that Kant advocates. No, what you I think what you meant to say was the concept of the state that reason advocates. <laughs> Yo, get get him! Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. This, right. this is about Kant, the man. No, no, no. He's just he's, he's just giving out. Kant. He's just like articulating what like the rational right. idea of the state is. Not he's not. Yeah, he's yeah, not. No, he did just he consulted he consulted with the concept of right a priori. Exa- exa- came that's back that's what I was trying news. to say. Yeah, yeah. So that other yeah other than yeah. that though that was lit. I'm really happy he did that for us. <laughs> Someone yeah. had to. I mean, I wasn't up to the task. I mean, God, like where to start? I know. There's it's, just, it's there's a lot. Just crazy Can shit. We just say that first, of, first of all. This, this is a lot. This, he's really like, Kant, Kant <laughs> when he talks about he's, he's transcendental subjects, he's in his zone. As soon as he starts talking about the historical, real <laughs> existing world, it, it just gets so loopy. <laughs> it's loose, baby. Where yeah, he, this it, is yeah, him letting loose. It's man. a fever dream. <laughs> someone told him to like, someone <laughs> was like, let him cook. And this is what he. This is what he did. <laughs> this brain cooked. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I guess where 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 we could start is basically Kant's trying to figure out what are what are the necessary and practical conditions for anyone to be secure in their possessions and in their no, in their sense of self as a as a rights bearing citizen. So far, so good. But then, you know, it seems as if that this can only be accomplished through, you know, how Kant derives the state. And gosh, it was really funny that practical syllogism he uses so to figure out the executive, the legislative, and the judiciary. He's like, here's the major premise, the minor premise. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm laughing. The tomorrow. structure like, of the state couldn't believe- perfectly models the practical syllogism, which is not a syllogism I knew existed until I read this. Yeah. So- Oh, I, I didn't know you could do that, but you know, Kant made it respectable. I didn't know you could do that. And so his argument against like the state of nature, it's very strange. He's like, you know, I'm not even saying things were all bad in the state of nature. You know, he's just saying that there wasn't the presence of, of justice, of stability, yeah. uh, predictability, and the types of creatures that he thinks, you know, we must be. Now, what's interesting here is that the state becomes almost this um nearly incontestable linchpin for holding together our society as rational creatures. And he thinks that, you know, without this state, that to contest or to rebel against this state would be to undo the very conditions for peace that were necessary for reason to do its work. And so I do love that, you know, the state gets a sort of metaphysical endowment of the life and possibility of a rational people. Mm-hmm. But I love that he says, you know, I mean, of, of course you can like you complain and register. Oh, that was one of my favorite your, parts. Your like, you're never allowed to dissent, but you are allowed to complain. It's like the perfect constitution. Grumble. Yeah. <laughs> Kvetch even you're allowed to, but rebel you cannot. And it's because for him, and I hope we really elaborate how far this goes. Like he even thinks about a bad sovereign, um, and what you can can and cannot do to a bad sovereign, which is you can never execute them or anything like that, because to do no, so would be to be to strike a blow at, 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 
ourselves as rational creatures. Okay. Which, there's, wow. There's something that, that was maybe for me the most striking part of all the things we read in this text was when he's describing the feeling one gets, the moral feel, the, yeah, the moral feeling that uh, accompanies hearing, anytime you hear of a monarch that was beheaded, it's like about Charles the first. Not an aesthetic Louis, feeling. Louis, the, yeah, exactly. A moral <laughs> feeling. And he, and he's just like, I, I I need to try to make sense of this. It's hard. Like as soon as I read anything about like Louis the Sixteenth being killed, I just enter this like profound malaise and discomfort. And you know, and, and he tries to give an he tries to give an account of like why that is a necessary feeling. It's proof of like <laughs> our moral constitution. <laughs> it's like, dude, this is like this is entirely your own psychodrama. I think we, yeah, no, that's that one. I think maybe not a universal feeling. I'm just going to toss that out there. Dude, Wait, every, everything in here becomes... Can like, I say something without y'all getting mad? Let's say it. Honestly, when I was reading that footnote, there was a part of me that's like, wait, do I kind of feel that way? Like when that <laughs> Japanese former prime minister got assassinated, everyone oh, was just like, yes, king, yes. And there was murked. a part of me that's just like, is this the end of reason? And I, I desperately <laughs> wanted reason to stay. You know, anytime I, I see a leader get overthrown. <laughs> okay, I, I get you, so, but I was, I'm sorry, that was one of those moments of just unadulterated happiness for me. Just, <laughs> fair enough, fair enough, fair enough. Oh, man. Okay, but like, in, okay, can we like be serious for a second here, you guys? Like, I, I do feel yeah, like, yeah, like it serious. does, like, yeah, I feel like we're like, let's, Let's read the metaphysics of morals and we're just like, it is funny. I mean, I think his opinions are funny, but like th surely like the, the thing that makes him feel like he can just have these opinions or indulge in what is clearly like his, like a, a major set of rationalizations for his own moral intuitions is that he thinks it's a good way of putting it. I mean, yeah, that's like plainly what happens. It's wild where it's just like, this is kind of like, yeah. this is just like what he thinks about the world and what we've done yeah. is yeah. like, we did the first yeah. critique and then we did the second critique and then we did the third critique and then we did the, and then we had the groundwork at some point in there. And then like really what we're like amounting to is he needed to like understand the rational basis for like what was happening in modernity in this very specific way. So, and then you start wondering, was it all just one big moralism from the beginning? You know, this is like my question. Mm. But mm. surely there is like a, an integrated system here. Like I like so, you know, we move at the beginning of the text from like private right, like in a discussion of innate rights and natural rights and why there are moral capacities for putting agents with these you know, natural rights into relation with one another. And given that, like, need for being in so relation in order to have positive rights, it does seem like he has the grounds to say that actually justice is only possible in a set of relations that respects rights in a host of ways. In a rightful condition. In a rightful condition, yeah, right. Rightful so, condition. like, yeah. the reason he's saying that there's no justice in the state of nature is less literal than it is i think following from his understanding of the kind of beings we are like if we don't live in a society that rightful condition like if we don't live in a rightful condition then we by definition don't live under circumstances of justice 
Um, and therefore we can't be free. Mm -hmm. Like, and this mm -hmm. is the problem. We can't be free like that. Well, there's an important distinction there. Yeah. We, we could have lawless freedom. Yeah, we could, it could be a right? free but for all, have, but yeah. it cannot be yeah, free. Yeah, but that's not, <laughs> I like that, yes. So I feel like, I don't know, I just, I, maybe I just want to say like, why does this shit start, like, why does this even sound like it starts making sense would be nice. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think I can speak to that as you, the, the resident crypto Kantian, perhaps. <laughs> I think, you know, when I get swept up in this, and obviously, you know, when you put pressure on this, the, the whole thing starts to collapse in on itself. But the intuition, I, it seems to me, that Kant taps into is if states really cannot appeal to any higher order judge to stabilize, you know, these um, relations of freedom and reciprocity, it's as if Kant is dealing with the fact that actually actually states and all of that reside in us elaborating them. You know, there is not going to be, even if Kant is religious, no, not going to be any God that comes down and does it for us. And so the idea of trying to even slip into a constitution, a people's right to rebellion, he thinks then you are blowing up any certain foundation for there to be commerce and relationships between states, because it's as if Kant is dealing with, you know, it turns out, even if if this is somehow derived from reason a priori, we are all there is to, to accomplish something like this. And so he's trying to create some type of foundation that, you know, will constrain us from misusing our freedom to our own detriment. And so it seems like that's what he's dealing with, this sort of awesome responsibility we have as these creatures of reason. And yet it seems as if you know, he realizes rebellions and revolutions happen. And so it is possible for us to also reject what the one thing that can stabilize our relationships together. I, I mean, that's kind of like my sort of best argument for what he's doing. This is kind of a, a testament to Kant reckoning with you. The sort of awesome power we have as human beings mm -hmm. when it comes to not just establishing states and relationships, but disestablishing them. And the work of disestablishing them means that we can also make of ourselves the type of creatures who can't develop the conditions that can approximate perpetual peace, even though he does not seem really optimistic about perpetual peace happening. I think he actually even says it might be impossible, but that doesn't mean we can't approximate it. But that also means that in this effort to constrict and stabilize this freedom, he comes to these incredible conclusions like you know, women having children out of wedlock. And he describes that that baby is contraband mm. because you know this is happening outside law that like there is there is a fetishization of law going on here like let, let, let's be real it's just that is not a part of the polity it's just like, so we cannot put this woman to death i do but, think like this is like yeah. i think this is the link between like the stuff that seems argumentatively legitimate i'm gonna say i'm saying legitimate because i don't know it it seems legit to say to, to like draw this connection b between say the state and private and public right through, you know, the moral law. Like there's a, there's a, there's a big fat moralism that mm -hmm. ascends, you know? And I think a lot of people have the intuition that this is basically correct. Like when you talk to most people about politics or whatever, like what they are doing is usually inflating a moral principle to make sense of aggregate political activities and conflicts and so on. And I think if you talk to any committed Kantian, they will 
confess that this is what they're doing. Like you can't have a legitimate criticism of society without like the more kind of moral theory that's strong in the Kantian sense, um, concept of autonomy, concepts of reciprocity, concepts of freedom, blah, blah, blah. And so like, it's a way of like inflating morality very far. And I think that to me, the interesting thing is how wacky it does indeed become when you do that. Like it act, it like it plainly is mm. here. Although from what I understand, it's kind of like contemporary Kantians, especially people who do like human rights or international IR stuff, they'll be like, well, you know, that was weird, but we can do it. Like we can definitely make this happen. Like cosmopolitanism, like that, you know, so I just think that like these intuitions are very strong and I, I would like to understand better, like why does the weird shit come out? Like why does that always shake out? You know, the contemporary version of this is people talking about global governance. Like we're going to have one big global state. Like I think that's wild. Like I think global coordination in various respects is de absolutely desirable. But like, you know, you, there are philosophy books written about like having a big ass global state. And I'm like, hold on, there's 9 billion people. What are you talking about? He at least is clear that it's got to be an association and not yeah. like a sovereign un unity. He that that's impossible. But yeah, you get right. what some I'm saying. Like some things federation. get- 100%. Yeah. You know, and I, I, I'm just wondering, why is that true? Like, why do you start, does the smarting small with the mor mor morality kind of lead to this like aggressively- like free for all kind of like political theorizing. I don't I don't know. Like 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 the baby can't be like you see what I'm saying? Like the baby can't be it's not in the moral universe because it wasn't contracted uh because it didn't it wasn't born mm -hmm. in the moral universe and therefore it's outside mm -hmm. of it so and you have right to do something with it. Like that's so weird. That like you're you just like repeat that reasoning over and over again. Yeah, or where he says at some point he's like, you know, is there a, a duty of states to take care of like orphaned kids? And then he says, should should like wealthy unmarried people be taxed extra for that? He's like, maybe. Sort of a tricky problem. No one's really. It's like, I'm like, what are you fucking talking about? <laughs> it's such a weird thing yeah, to, yeah. to say and to think. What the hell? I mean, I think that's the right <laughs> idea though. That like it is that makes sense to me that if you start with a strong, like you ground your theory in like your political theory in a, like in an ethics, in a robust, like moral theory, you can end up in these really bizarre places. Um, but I also think that like, I don't know. I, I feel like the other side of this doesn't get asked enough. Mm -hmm. Like some of the difficult questions that they can't answer as easily. Like, so if you're a realist and you want to like totally push like moral normativity outside of the, sphere of politics, um, then you've got to accept the the identity of right and force, mm -hmm. right? And I think that's his, like, other than freedom, the, the central yes. problem for him in this book is, like, how can we, yes. like, is there such a thing as rightful force? And if so, like, what is it? Is there, like, legitimate violence? Is there... What are its limits, and what are, exactly. Or, yeah. and, and all of that. And I think that, like, and as somebody who, sorry, I just want to say, as somebody who generally tends to sympathize, like, much more in that realist direction particularly in a kind of Machiavellian or Spinozistic direction, I find it hard to relinquish, I, I find it hard to relinquish the, the, uh, the importance of, of not collapsing right and force into one another. Like, I mean, again, it's the old Thrasymachus problem of like, what are the right of the strongest or, you know, justice is the right of the strongest or something, you know? So, um, I don't know. I just feel like that doesn't, they, they have to answer that. So you have all, you get all these quirks with moralism, but there's also like, you know, any kind of fucking violence and abuse is, 
it, you have to consider right if right is equivalent to force, right? Like I, I find that like, and I think most people, like you said, referring to people's intuitions, find that abhorrent. And so, yeah. Well, okay. I'm going to let you guys get an award in edgewise in a second, but like, I'm very motivated by this problem because I think that that's exactly the right contrast, Owen. Like that's like where the, like that the money shot of like political philosophy is there. I think there's two, there's like the fact from the facts norms problem. And then I think, or the fact value distinction, like how do you develop social criticism or whatever political philosophy, like with respect to picking a side on that question. And then I think this kind of like power versus right picking aside on that question is like the other major mm -hmm. one. And so I think it's totally right to say that like he Kant, Kant is on the one side and that's the appeal because the question is how can a realist avoid that problem? I don't know if they can avoid it in terms of like needing no ethical theory. But what I would love to be convinced by is that there is some ethical theory that isn't the same thing as what we think of when we talk about moral philosophy that is available to us. Like, I think like, you know, I think that's what people like McIntyre are pushing at with like revise, reviving the like Aristotelian ideas of the good or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, and there's problems with that too. But I think the way out of this can't just be like no morals. Um, I think there are realists who want that. I'm just not convinced, but like no morals yeah, feels tough. But it might be that there's other morals. But I do feel like Kant is the person who like sets that agenda because that is what's driving all this. He's like, there can't be this anarchic state system. Like realism can't be mm -hmm. true. So in the political yeah, sense, political totally. realism. It certainly can't be true if something like perpetual peace is a thing that you know we ought to aim for in order to realize the type of creatures that we are. I think you know, it's very strange that I think the, the respect I have for this Kantian text is all it wants. He wants there to be a type of final cause of what we are doing by final cause and end that we are aiming at. Mm -hmm. But Kant is really, almost in a psychoanalytic way, disturbed by the historical contingency of origins and how 100 looking yeah. into yeah. those historical that is a good way of putting it it's worth just saying right away you mentioned it in the intro gil but multiple times in this text he he comes he, he like uh, articulates this idea that it's really important in fact it's a moral imperative not to think about the origin of your state like not like it's it's it, he says you know it's he puts the odd structure it's in there a like punishable it is, it's a punishable offense like do not you should have no curiosity about the origin of your state because he knows obviously he's not like this much of an idiot like he knows that like all states were founded with, like brutality violence genocide colonization like that's the origin of states and yet we're supposed to treat them as these like sacred rightful these bearers of the rightful condition right uh, which make which make possible like living in common make, in a rightful way and yeah. thus justice and so on, right? Yeah. Can I read the quote real quick? Yeah, read it. A people should not inquire with any practical aim in view. I think that's probably <laughs> yeah, the key yeah, yeah. thing. Yeah. A people should not yeah. inquire with any practical aim in view into the origin of the supreme authority to which it is subject. That is, a subject ought not to rationalize for the sake of action about the origin of this authority as a right that can still be called into question with regard to the obedience he owes it. Yeah. And so it's not, it's not only a duty not to inquire. You cannot inquire with some type of practical aim that's supposed to follow right. from that inquiry. Yeah, because I think he knows that like there's no possible 
practical takeaway other than oh well this is illegitimate or, or, or right? just There's like the no, state's no, contingent it's a it's a matter of historical contingency, contingency that it, it came yeah. into existence it, it isn't this like universal godlike structure it becomes a type of pragmatic solution to maybe particular problems but that means it also frees the you know future people to say well those um those problems those solutions aren't ours and so you know maybe we need to rethink this entire structure but the historical contingency problem it's almost like Kant's worry is the exact opposite of what Nietzsche loves to do with genealogy. Mm. You know, I could imagine like Kant and Nietzsche, if they, they met, you know, they'd be horrified by the other person. <laughs> yeah. And well, you know, because <laughs> the historical contingency of origins throws open this question of the difference between right and violence. If it seems as if it is actually as a practical aim understood that violence precedes what we understand by right, then this this structure that Kant is trying to develop of you know, why it is almost quasi, not quasi, it is rational, but quasi natural for us to organize ourselves this way, then you're, you're into realism. And yeah. Kant would be aghast by a universe that seems as if it is, you know, simply a structure of violence and contingency. And so origins need to be shrouded in, as it concerns practical aims, but ends and goals those need to be brought clearer into view. Does this follow as quickly as that, though? Can, like, I want to just, like, maybe think with Kant for a second and ask you guys just, like, as an actual question, right? Like, mm -hmm. if the origin of the state is illegitimate, does it therefore follow that, like, everything that happens in the state is, like, you know, tainted, that there's no, therefore, possibility of this being right or there being justice? Does Because, like, you know... I could see why someone would say that, but it also feels very fast, right? Like things come from where they come from and then do they have to like be marked by that origin forever? Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I, I would just say like, and this I here, I'm just like kind of picking up from um, Foucault's society must be defended uh, where again, he's doing it in a very Nietzschean vein, uh, trying to say exactly what you're saying, Will, which is that like, if you, you know, try to look at the actual genealogy of states and the way that the, their founding the warlike nature of their founding and the violence and destruction of their founding carries through, though. It depends, Gil, the answer to your question. Like, how much does it carry through to the present? Like, how much can the present, yeah. how much can you read in the present state of things that, like, destructive or genocidal or, like, violent founding of the state? And, I mean, it's not like you can't read it at all. I mean, like, in settler, sure. in settler <laughs> colonial states, I mean, it's not hard to, like, read continuing consequences of that of that moment of unrightful foundation, right? So I, yeah, I just think it really depends on how much, yeah, I mean, the language Foucault uses is like, you know, to, he, he talks in that, in that, in those lectures about the need to learn to read the, to, to be able to discern the ongoing war, that the war never ended, right? The founding war never ended and that it continues through various institutions and, yeah. Yeah, I, I I like that, and but I think the I think another way I would respond to Gill's you know good question here is we have to keep in mind Kant's other aim with this project, which is Kant is trying to keep a lid on the notion of rebellion and revolution. Yeah, and so if it turns out that the state emerged from a type seventeen ninety seven, he's not yeah. yeah he's looking around and it's, it seems like you know, this is obviously on the horizon. So if the state emerges from violence, it doesn't have to be that the state is bad, but if you admit that 
into the very narrative and theory of the state, then it becomes harder to make an argument for why future revolutions aren't, you know, we can't justify future revolutions with a sort of post hoc rationalization of it will have been necessary to do this. And so I think you know, there's the Kant that's trying to preserve a type of stability understood as allegiance to the state. And I think you know, that's what's really important from the even if you're unhappy and dissatisfied, you must still remain committed to this state. But the emerge the historically contingent merge of the state in a context of force, I wonder if Kant is thinking that that threatens to weaken the allegiance that subjects feel to the state and thus weaken the allegiance that subjects feel to themselves to stabilize their relationships, to secure possession and duties and all that. Yeah, I think that like there's like maybe two steps to making this into like a syllogism that Kant's trying to construct. And one is that there's always, always a duty to exit the state of nature and to like enter into a civil society. There like that is like an a priori unconditional duty that you have to form social bonds and to try to create something like justice and peace. And then the second step is like anything other than like reform, right? However, much your suffering and dignities under an abusive sovereign, however fucked up the state is. If you do anything other than reform, if you're actually an insurrectionist or interested in rebellion, he thinks that like your aim is not a better constitution. It's the abolition of like the rightful condition itself. Right. Mm -hmm. And if you, if those two claims are right, then his like, you know, argument for there being no right to rebel works. Right. There's no version of trying to, you know, replace the king that isn't actually aiming at the dissolution of society as such, which you can't want, he thinks. Kind of crazy. Yeah. It's kind of a crazy to think that it's a bit of a, a step back, even from Locke, who said that like tyrannical or abusive like government is a state of war. Like it's not, it's not a civil condition. You're not in the civil condition. Yeah. If your state, right. if your state isn't just, like if it's not acting justly or isn't structured in a just way, you're actually still in the state of nature. Yeah, it's crazy to think that, you know, this motherfucker, like, you know, he read his Rousseau and, you know, it's 150 years later and he's like, no, actually, you're still in the civil condition even when it's, even when it's garbage. Even Hobbes was like, if you're not safe, like if your body, if you're not being kept if safe, if, yeah. if your security isn't guaranteed, then you're actually not in, in civil condition. And he's just like, you have to accept these abuses. Like, uh, oh. Okay, I'm, what I was going to say is not going to be more controversial than that. Yeah, Kant takes the cake on, on mm. that, yeah. But the controversial thing I want to say is that I think Kant put, does put his thumb on the very hard question that I think many of us, perhaps as socialists, revolutionaries, communists, whatever you, you call yourselves, you know, eventually I think have to have an answer for, which is Kant is trying to say you might want to try to justify rebellion by saying that's a particularly bad sovereign. But he seems to think the structure of our actions can't help. There's I can almost hear a type of searching existentialism here mm. can't help but also make a more general claim. You might want to constrain it to that context, mm. but once you had opened the door to insurrection, Kant's going to ask, well, what principles do you have to decide mm. between the maxim, different insurrections? Right? Yeah. The maxim of your yeah. action. Too. What's you, the yeah. universal maxim yeah. that doesn't have to constantly just be ad hoc, you know, saying, oh, no, 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 but in this particular set of conditions and all of that. Mm -hmm. That is why Kant, you know, even like, you know, this is, you know, 
Let's call him woke Kant. He looks at the world. He thinks settler colonialism is bad, but he's definitely not going to say, yes, those lands were taken. He is not going to say those from whom those lands are taken have a right to rebel and engage in revolution. Yeah. Maybe Kant, the individual, unfortunately, never told us this. It's like, yeah, it's pretty bad. You know, something should probably be done to restitute them. He wasn't willing to go that far. And so the controversial thing I was going to say is, you know, we might say insurrection, rebellion at times can be good. But then you know, say you might have people who look at like you know the January 6th thing and they want to say well that's a bad version <laughs> and you know, we could have all sorts of reasons but I think Kant would mm -hmm. say those reasons yeah. you know they're ad hoc they're partial and then we look at other insurrections and rebellions and we'll say that that is good and I'm not saying we can't make those distinctions and all of that but you know Kant clearly thinks you know, that is you know incredibly you know a, a, a ground of shifting sands and so it is either are we in favor of things like insurrections, rebellions in principle, or are we committed to the idea that actually in principle we think the status quo in the state yeah. should be conserved, but there are these highly specific specified conditions in which we will say yes. Or you could yeah. say it's not up to you to say yes or no, rebellions happen. But then you're closer to the, the realism, I think. I, I, I think this view of his can only like it can only really be sustained because of other views he has about the teleological direction mm -hmm. of history and the stuff he says in what is enlightenment about, you know, you know, if you allow public reason to exercise itself, then like pro you, you don't need revolutions basically because revolution is being impatient. Like it, what, what really yeah. is going to, what really is going to do the job is like, if you allow public reason to flourish, if you allow people to criticize, right. If you allow, if you allow criticism, and then you're going to, like, in his mind, like, you're going to get there, like, we're getting there anyways, guys. Like, we're, we're making our way slowly towards, like, the regulative idea of perpetual peace and of a, a just state and all that. So, like, the revolution thing is actually just going to backtrack on that. It's, it's just going to, like, you know, create more problems than it's going to solve. But if you don't have that, frankly, mm. completely wrong, like, idea, that <laughs> just, like... <laughs> The free, wow. like the free use of, I love Khan, but Mr. like anti-progress. <laughs> no, but like that, the free, the, <laughs> oh, the, well, like people well. being able to like freely talk means like a hundred percent that's going to bring us in the direction of, you know, uh, of greater freedom. Then it's, then, it, then, then it becomes, I think a more ridiculous looking like way of, mm. of, of just categorically rejecting, um, all I mean, rebellion. Even, right? Like he's such like a. He's such a committed, like, gradualist in this regard that, like, even stuff that he identifies as being wrong, he's like, you can't get rid of him too quickly. Yeah. So, like, there's an example. He's talking about, like, um, he's talking about hereditary, like, nobility. And he asks, like, whether or not, like, the state has the right to set aside a particular class of people as being, like, meriting, like, a no noble status. And he's like, no, especially in the hereditary case, that's fucking absurd and arbitrary and stupid and you shouldn't do that. He's like, and of course, we've got some of those like nobles hanging around still because of we've inherited some stuff from feudalism, which <laughs> was really just about war and that, well, that sucked. But, you know, even then he's like, just don't appoint new ones. You know, he's like, yeah. you can't just abolish That's the, right. you can't just abolish no. these like class of nobles. Just like, don't have new, new ones God, after these guys die. Can you imagine the we'll horror just, like, call of him the watching the Jacobins and like reading about the Jacobins in his newspaper? Yeah. But I think the reason that he was, I mean, I, I think it's, it's right to say that it does start to look weirder if he doesn't have the fundamentally like modernist and teleological way of thinking about where human beings are going. And in that sense, it's actually kind of 
Some of this is kind of optimistic, you know, because I think the sympathetic reading to Kant is that he's really sympathetic to the French Revolution. It's just that he mm -hmm. doesn't like where that went, you know? And there's a lot of... And, and I think that um, this is what makes... It, this is going a little tangential to what I actually planned on saying, but this is what makes liberalism such an interesting political ideology because after the sort of experiment with like radical republicanism and a series of revolutions and important, most importantly, the French revolution, the, the way of kind of responding, like turning that set of ideas in a more liberal direction and the demand to, to moderate the, the speed and pace and unruliness of emancipation. Like it's both a cudgel that like the conservative wing of history mm -hmm. likes to wield and it's also one that liberals like to wield and, in, and importantly these are not the same people so liberals can become very conservative but like they're not the same as conservatives who are against the french revolution and that's what makes them slippery because like if you're gonna i think i've said this before that the mm. one like the one thing that you know you know a real conservative if you talk about france even today in 2024 and they call the french revolutionaries terrorists and you know, they, that like, mm -hmm. you know, that like the, the kind of revulsion at the French Revolution, that's what gets a real, a true conservative going. I mean, there's a lot of other tells, but I really think that's the real one. And, um, <laughs> for sure. Like, and I think that liberals like Kant who react to that, that's what makes them oscillate and strange and ambiguous and complicated because he's not saying no. So, Anyway, I had a whole different point I was going to make. I don't know what happened. I went to, in a different direction. Oh, yeah. It does make sense. It does make sense because if you think that, that the reason he is able to walk that line and create that ambiguity is because he's qu kind of confident that you don't need it. So, so like the metaphysics matters to like how he thinks, okay, well, why would you need to have another revolution? This is where we're headed, people. And that's all to the good. Yeah, and ju just to give some context too, like in the conflict of faculties, conflict of the faculties, Kant says that about the French Revolution, he talks about the French Revolution, and he says that like it's to be admired as a marker of the progress of reason, but the actors involved in it are to be admonished morally. It's an amazing position to hold. Like, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It, the, the, it's great that the event. <laughs> oh my god, happened. that's my boy though. It's the great that the event happened, yeah, but the people that did it are evil. Like, yeah. <laughs> Well, there's like a, I mean, there's also something feeling himself being torn in these two directions too, and connecting it back to the kind of like revulsion at the realism that just like, you know, right, just is the right of the stronger. And this is like, you know, this just can't be. He's got a line. There's a discussion. The discussion of punishment is fascinating, I think, about yeah. like the right of states to punish. Because there he tells basically is like, actually, like, first of all, one thing that's fascinating is complete rejection of any pragmatic justification mm -hmm. for punishment. Mm -hmm. right? He says, like, if you're punishing someone for committing a crime with any practical view in mind, you're doing it wrong, yeah. right? Like, it's not for the reform of the of the person who's committed the crime. It's not for, like, you know, certainly not the pleasure of the people who are harmed. It's just because they've done something wrong. No end further than that is possible without ruining justice. And he says, if justice goes... There is no longer any value in men's living on the earth. Yeah. End quote. Which is like you, the pathos is off the wow. fucking charts. Like um, I don't know if 
I don't know what it would mean to believe that's not, that. That's not right, but it's crazy. <laughs> I, that's, no. I don't like. You know what I mean? That's, that's my feeling about that. <laughs> I love like, how you said that. That's not not right. Yeah, it's, but, it's, yeah. it's pretty crazy. I, I mean, oh, fuck. I mean, but okay. So, like, a couple of things I, I'd love to say is like you. Okay, so I understand that a lot of people look at this text and you know, they think this is this is probably the worst of late Kant. Maybe maybe the only thing is that it's worse when he's obviously senile and he kind of you know he reverts back to some of his racist views and apparently the explanation is like yeah he was just losing his mind so he wasn't there. Sure. I think when he brought yeah, up what, the hot dogs in here, I was really expecting way worse than what we got. No, yeah, it was yeah. actually, <laughs> yeah. uh, it wasn't based, but it was like, oh, okay, cool, it was, nice. Okay. Um, you shouldn't take, not yeah. bad. You shouldn't take the savage's land. You shouldn't, you know. <laughs> He's like, you know, like the, don't do it by lying to them and all of that. Yeah, yeah. You know? But you know, you're watching you know, the state emerge as a type of fetish for Kant to kind of you mm -hmm. know, resolve these conflicts and anxieties that he has. Like, you, you, you know, so Gil, you read one crazy line. How about this? When he's talking about you know, how you know, someone must die for a particular type of crime, even if a civil society were to be dissolved by the consent of all its members, oh, for example, yes, if a people inhabiting an island decided to separate and disperse throughout the world, the last murderer remaining in prison would first have to be executed so that each has done to him what his deeds deserve and blood guilt does not cling to the people for not having insisted upon this punishment for otherwise the people can be regarded as collaborators in this public violation of justice my god when I read this I was like let him live <laughs> but they, he's like no you have unfinished business you're not even gonna keep going with this society shit you still gotta kill this guy. You know, like, what do you all care? But you know, but what you can see what's going on with Kant is like he thinks without the state. And you know, there's a there's another line that you know I won't read out, but it's wild. What he says about churches how they're necessary for the state oh, because yeah, yeah. It inculcates in people you know the practice of believing in invisible power, which he clearly thinks the state <laughs> is animated by an type of invisible power. We never see freedom. Yeah. We never see full justice and all of that. The state White has to be argument. a fetish because without it, what sense would we have to be on this planet? And I guess the, the kind of question I have for you all is, in what way do you think we still have a type of metaphysical view of the state? You know, sometimes I hear mm. how some liberals talk about the state. It seems like the state isn't simply an instrument for coordinating essential economic, political, and social functions. The state is life. It, you must be permanently, absolutely committed to it because without it, you are nothing. So don't excavate the state. Don't try to get beyond it. The state is reason. And when I'm reading Kant, I'm like, wow, I'm seeing how this idea in liberalism is like emerging and flowering. But instead, Kant's like, and that's good. It's <laughs> tight, actually. <laughs> That's good, actually. It, it yeah. just really seems like a real worry about the 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 sort of the rat the the radical potential of human action and Kant wants to you know all at once he's optimistic but he seems to be deeply terrified of what the radical openness of human action could do if it really did operate without particular types of illusions so i just wanted to say too that like that's that's right and one of the things that I was kind of surprised by, but then on reflection, it totally tracks that this would be the kind of argument he'd make. 
because you know the the contrast is always between the civil state and the state of war, right? The condition of war, which characterizes the state of nature, for which, of course, as we know all the way back from Hobbes, doesn't mean there's actual violence, but just its possibility and its sort of ever-present threat, right? And then he says, when we get to the right of nations, yeah, well, in relation to each other, states are in a kind of lawless condition, so they're in the condition of war. But then he says, like, okay, what sorts of rights and duties are there that bind the state when they're at war with each other? And there's a lot. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of shit that he says you can't do even as a war, uh, as a warring nation against another. It, you can't be subjecting people. It can't be an extermination. It's not for plunder. You're not allowed to use spies. You're not allowed <laughs> yeah, to use assassins. I was just like, okay, go, come real? on, man. Like, I'm not, I'm not pro-war, but like. Let, let people have spies. Have spies. I want to have <laughs> spies. That's the pure spies idea of fun, right dictates right? guild. No spies. I know because, no, again, on reflection, the argument is that, well, what is the point of a state, presumably, to secure the conditions for peace in which, like, one can live freely amongst one's, one's, uh, one's peers mm -hmm. in a citizenship? And, like, doing shit like that, using spies, right. undermines the very sort of legitimacy of a rightful state in which something like yeah. being a free being is possible. So like, yeah, you're not allowed to do that. You're no better than the murderer at that point and you don't belong to society in that moment, right? So I just think it's fa it's fascinating that like even in the the moment of actual war, he's like, "No, justice has got to be respected." You know, there's mm -hmm. not like a there's a there there are, <laughs> there are rules to this shit. But isn't that a weird part of the argument because at least when he says internal to the state, we know what the constraining mechanism is for the for justice to be effective, yeah. and that's the state. What's the constraining mechanism when states are at war? Well, there's no yeah. court that you can appeal to. Yeah, right. There's no there's mean. no yeah. sovereign power above it. It literally just is like no. the The constraining power is fucking reason. Reason. Practical yeah, I was gonna reason. Say it's pra practical reason. Yeah. It, it's practical reason. I'm starting to see why the realists might not like this part. <laughs> 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 They're like, what are you kidding? But yeah, that's the, that's that's the only way he, where he, place he can end up, I guess, right? Yeah, man. So maybe we just need to get the leaders of our countries to, to read the metaphysics of morals, and you know, maybe they might learn something about what they can and cannot do. It would be, yeah, it would be very funny to try to like explain to Joe Biden that like you know spies aren't allowed according to pure practical reason <laughs> in its a priori investigation nor is nor is like supporting like genocidal wars right not allowed to do that can i just rehearse this one argument about death and the death penalty because the death penalty well, this stuff is, my favorite. is among the wildest it's so good. shit oh yeah this Hold stuff on, is I so he does so, so, so he good. always it's uses really all good. these yeah. italics and like there's this sense where he goes uh, so here, too, when, when sentence is pronounced on a number of criminals united yes. in a plot, the best equalizer before public justice is death. And it rules. <laughs> like they, Sometimes I'm like, death. why does this man italicize so many words? Um, but that one really hit hard. And sometimes yeah, sometimes hits, like, yeah. and as for churches, and churches is italicized. <laughs> yeah, I'm just like, you already named the section <laughs> churches. Why did you? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> So he's got a really funny bit where he's like, okay, say that two people 
an honorable person and a scoundrel have both committed a murder. <laughs> and you ask them what the appropriate punishment would be. And you go, would you like to be killed in response? Or would you be like to be submitted to like convict labor for the rest of your life? And he says, well, the honorable person would say correctly that they should die, right? That they know that. Kill me, please. I've violated right. And this is what I deserve. And the scoundrel would prefer convict labor. So the best thing for both of them is to kill them <laughs> because the scoundrel good, doesn't yeah. deserve to get what he wants. And the honorable man deserves to get his honorably recognized punishment. His shade, uh, so his good. shade for like his real revulsion really at moral depravity in this text is pretty strong. Like when, when you yeah. like talks but, when he talks about the police, he's like, yeah, yeah. Obviously like the police serve the function of like security and convenience, but what's really important is that they serve the function of decency. So this is what he says. He says for the government's business of guiding the people by laws is made easier when the feeling for decency, the census decori as negative mm -hmm. taste, interesting, is not deadened by what offends the moral sense, such as begging, uh. uproar on the streets, stenches and public prostitution. Venus Vulgivaga. <laughs> I don't know. I, I tried looking up Venus Vulgivaga. So it was tough to find. A Dude, I love the idea that if you encounter too many stenches, it yeah. deadens your moral yeah, sensibility. If, if, and then you're in. If things like smell too bad, you lose your senses decori. And you, you become. May he never go down certain streets in New York City. <laughs> yeah, seriously. That really is know. all I am saying. Wow, or anywhere it, in Paris it, where it just reeks like piss everywhere. Is it bad that, I, you know, at least for some of that, like I was reading that and I was like, I don't know. I mean, well, this don't sound too bad. I like, <laughs> like, I, I like a clean smelling outside. He, he's too real for that. He's too well, real. the crypto cartoon yeah. is just like, it's, it's not so crypto. I know. It's, I, I, <laughs> the, the war inside me. But because you know, he also says a strange thing about the death penalty. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, me and Kant, we're at war with ourselves. We're unhappy. We're at the unhappy consciousness, right? Mm. You know, where he yep. describes the noumenal person. Oh, yeah. The, the homo like, noumenous? Yes. Well, yes who I mean, legislates the penal law. And it's the whole phenomenon the phenomenal who, person who might be like, please right. don't kill me, please. <laughs> well, because he needs to have some way of saying that, like, what's going on here isn't suicide, right? So he needs to right, say no, that the no, one no. who legislates and the one who's killed in accordance with universal laws of freedom are not the same guy, even though presumably I am a citizen in the society in which once I kill someone, I am put to death for it. So he says, yeah, actually in that moment, you're no longer part of the active, active citizenship. You're no longer part of the legislative body. You've subtracted yourself from the community of rights bearers by murdering someone. Yeah. So sorry, homo phenomenon. I mean, to the, to the yeah. fucking electric well, chair. Homo noomenon already made the choice. He already picked the right thing. Yeah. So much of this text is him struggling with the fact that human beings are not just transcendental subjects, like not just pure reason, but also anthropological creatures. You know what I mean? It's the, like, yeah, which sucks. I feel like the not whole project would be so much easier and much quicker if you could just like legislate, you know, talk about the self-legislation of transcendental subjects and not have to deal with this fact of being human. And then he's got to wade into all of these like empirical things that where I have to say, that's not when he shines. 
No, no even though he, he wades in a lot, that's not him at his best. But it's very strange that his defense of the state is very different than I think what maybe some conservatives defend the state, which is saying we are such corrupted creatures. We require this um, repression if we're going to live with one another. And Kant, he doesn't want that nasty business to be part of the state. The state is the best of us. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the good, state you know, is you know, because we are you know, have this capacity for reason, not because we're corrupted and cruel and selfish and it should still be Mm -hmm. able to exercise the death penalty because it's the best in us oh yeah of course (laughs) obviously yeah that's kind of what this is all about that's the fun (laughs) part it should make sure that all Um, illegitimate children are annihilated in the street does does this actually feel like this really is all about Kant wrestling with the death penalty of the state a lot of it I mean like I think one okay so here's one last thing I wanted to point out and because I on the one hand, I agree with you, Owen, in your characterization there, that like he seems to be trying to deal with the fact that we're not just transcendental subjects, right? <laughs> We've got this messy homo phenomenon stuff. But then I don't know, because he says it this is right at the beginning of public right, right of a state, section 44. He kind of makes it sound like violence is like an a priori or transcendental. Hmm feature of human being oh yeah it's and not from i don't know what the fuck experience yeah yeah huh. it is not from experience that we learn of men's maximum violence and of their malevolent tendency to attack one another before external legislation endowed with power appears it is therefore not some fact that makes coercion through public law necessary oh. he's like a priori i oh. can tell you that human beings are going to be violent towards each other and i'm like what the fuck are you talking however about? well disposed and law-abiding they might be it still lies a priori in the rational idea of such a condition that oh fuck, there's a huge parenthesis. Uh, what? Uh, what? Oh, what the fuck? That before a public lawful condition is established, individual men, peoples, and states can never be secure against violence from one another. Damn, since each has its that's yeah. a priori. Yeah, it's a priori. That's like a transcendental that, fact. I am actually. I don't kinda, know. That's yeah. I gotta, yeah, my I gotta best argument for him was like the state's the best of us, but now we've got transcendental violence. <laughs> I know, right? But then again, and then I wanted just to connect that to like the very last lines of the of the part. Um, on the doctrine of the doctrine of right, where he says that like morally practical reason pronounces us its irresistible veto. There is to be no war, right? He thinks that like all of this really is about like war shouldn't fucking happen. Hmm. Not between individuals. The state of war should be abolished between nations. We just shouldn't have war. And like from that, everything else follows. So we've got like a transcendental propensity towards malevolent violence and the demand that there be no war. And the whole of the doctrine of right is contained between those two ideas. And it's nuts. I mean, that's crazy, but I actually think he thinks a little too much of us, you know? Like he didn't know we'd have like se- like senile <laughs> presidents and shit. Like he thought he thought people in, in charge were like gonna be <laughs> like people who were manifesting the will of the people and mm-hmm. he thought they would be like re- reasonable and rational people. Like I feel like he got a couple steps ahead of himself yeah he didn't think we'd live this long no i mean i just like he was giving a lot of he was giving a a weird amount of credit to like state managers you know what i mean i wish he just lived a little bit longer we could have got like a full assessment of um his thoughts on the napoleonic wars and what napoleon did to europe Mm -hmm. you know just like violently imposing the values of the revolution quote unquote Honestly, I, I'm glad you didn't live to see that. Imagine how conservative Kant might have become after that. Oh, it would have sounded <laughs> but, bad, I think. Yeah. There's no shot. Yeah. There's no shot it would have been a positive appraisal. Well, yeah. Also, he would have had to see Prussia get dusted. 
Before we go, can I just say that Kant's weird also immigration policy were all at once. It's like, <laughs> Kant, this is so left-leaning. It's like, everyone has a right to visitation. You're like, yes, bro, right to movement. He's like, but not a right to settle. I'm like, Oh. <laughs> oh, 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 okay. okay. Um, I, you know, so we can vacation, but oh, we, we can't move permanently. That, that, I, I guess I was surprised by that part. I thought maybe he was going to the place of like, and people should be able to go wherever they need to. He's like, you can go for a time in a spell, but get out. I'm like, okay, all right, fair enough. And also, you have the right to emigrate, but you're not allowed to take anything fixed on you know, your fixed property. So if you own land and you sell it, you're not allowed to take that money with you. That belongs to the state. <laughs> yeah, oh, that was a good one. Oh, yeah, capitalists eat your heart out. He's like, nope, ours. Yeah, I mean, that is uh, that obviously goes without saying here that like just he has no idea at all about the dynamics of capital. Not not a single thought. It's completely absent from the entire discussion. Yeah, but he knows what kind of state he like kind of just reflexively knows what kind of state they need. Yeah. You know? yeah. Right. Because he talks about commerce, but he thinks of commerce simply almost like physical interaction. That's what Yeah, he, that's part of cosmopolitan right, is that like everyone should have like the possibility of commerce with each but other. But he does at least he does at least say that like it's you know, wealthy people have to get ready to be like to have the shit taxed out of them basically in order to give he does say that, which I do like. Yeah. The, they can't afford it. And, you know, it's like a simple argument that yeah. I'm surprised even like like libs don't use more often, which is like, well, the conditions under which you need a rightful condition to make that wealth, right? Okay, so you don't fucking own it. <laughs> yeah, wow. Can't pill them into socialism. Pretty cool. <laughs> That's right. Big fan. All right. Well, I think that does it for us today. New episodes of What's Up to Philosophy come out every two weeks wherever you get your podcasts. Also, check us out on YouTube for videos and live streams. Before closing out today, we'd like to take a minute to thank some of the people who are supporting the show on Patreon. We couldn't do this without you, and we're really grateful. Today's new patrons are Paul Blazer, Jeff Swindles, Kier Hanradi, Freddie Hancock, Mark Williams, William Ostermeyer, Justin, Sebastian, Aaron Blumenthal, AJ, Allison Carden, Justin Vafadari, Lucas Goldman, Jack Samuel, Sophia Parker, Kyle Halam, Justin Thomas, CS, Ula Diedrich Kulestool and George Smith. Thank you all very much. If you too like what we're doing and want to support the show, please go to our website, leftofphilosophy.com, and click the support button. Patrons get access to exclusive content like locked episodes, bonus videos, and access to our Discord server. You can also buy some What's Left of Philosophy merch from the store linked on our website. Follow us on Twitter at Left of Phil, and don't forget to leave us good reviews and comments on your podcast app. With that, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye.